We'll do the uh, evening chanting in English. disciples who have practiced well. To these the Buddha, the Dhamma and the Sangha, we render with offerings our rightful homage. It is well for us that the Blessed One, having attained liberation, still had compassion for later generations. May these symbol offerings be accepted for our long-lasting benefit and for the happiness it gives us. The Lord, the perfectly enlightened and blessed one, I render homage to the Buddha, the Blessed One. The teaching so completely explained by him, I bow to the Dhamma. The Blessed One's disciples who have practiced well, I bow to the Sangha. Now let us pay preliminary homage to the Buddha. Noble and perfectly enlightened one, homage to the blessed, noble and perfectly enlightened one, homage to the blessed, noble and perfectly enlightened one. Now let us chant the recollection of the Buddha. Of the Blessed One's reputation has spread as follows. He, the Blessed One, is indeed the Pure One, the Perfectly Enlightened One. He is impeccable in conduct and understanding, the Accomplished One the knower of the worlds. He trains perfectly those who wish to be trained. He is teacher of gods and humans. He is awake and holy. Now let us chant the supreme praise of the Buddha. The, Buddha. the truly worthy one, 
endowed with such excellent qualities, whose being is composed of purity, transcendental wisdom and compassion, who has enlightened the wise like the sun, awakening the lotus. I bow my head to that peaceful chief of conquerors, the Buddha who is the safe, secure refuge of all beings, as the first object of recollection. I venerate him with bowed head. I am indeed the Buddha's servant. The Buddha is my Lord and guide. The Buddha is sorrow's destroyer, who bestows blessings on me. To the Buddha I dedicate this body and life and in devotion I will walk the Buddha's path of awakening. For me there is no other refuge. The Buddha is my excellent refuge. By the utterance of this truth, may I grow in the Master's way. By my devotion to the Buddha, and the blessing of this practice by its power may all obstacles be overcome Now let us chant the recollection of the Dhamma. The Dhamma is well expounded by the Blessed One, apparent here and now, timeless, encouraging investigation, leading inwards to be experienced individually by the wise. Now let us chant the supreme praise of the Dhamma. Because it is well expounded and it can be divided into path and fruit, practice and liberation. The Dhamma holds those who uphold it from falling into delusion. I revere the excellent teaching, that which removes darkness. The Dhamma, which is the supreme, secure refuge of all beings, as the second object of recollection. I venerate it with bowed head. I am indeed the Dhamma's servant. The Dhamma is my Lord and guide. The Dhamma is sorrow's destroyer, and it bestows blessings on me. To the Dhamma I dedicate this body and life 
and in devotion I will walk this excellent way of truth. For me there is no other refuge. The Tummer is my excellent refuge. By the utterance of this truth, may I grow in the Master's way. By my devotion to the Dhamma and the blessing of this practice, by its power may all obstacles be overcome. Let us chant the recollection of the Sangha. Who have practiced well, who have practiced directly, who have practiced insightfully, those who practice with integrity, that is the four paths. The eight kinds of noble beings, these are the blessed one's disciples. Such ones are worthy of gifts, worthy of hospitality, worthy of offerings, worthy of respect. They give occasion for incomparable goodness to arise in the world. Now let us chant the supreme praise of the Sangha. That Sangha which has practiced well, the field of the Sangha formed of eight kinds of noble beings, guided in body and mind by excellent morality and wisdom. I revere that assembly of noble beings perfected in purity. The Sangha, which is the supreme, secure refuge of all beings, as the third object of recollection, I venerate it with bowed head. I am indeed the Sangha's servant, the Sangha is my Lord and Guide. The Sangha is sorrow's destroyer, and it bestows blessings on me. To the Sangha I dedicate this body and life, and in devotion I will walk the well-practiced way of the Sangha. For me there is no other refuge. The Sangha is my excellent refuge. By the utterance of this truth, may I grow in the Master's way. By my devotion to the Sangha and the blessing of this practice, by its power, may all obstacles be overcome.
Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Buddhang Dhammang Sanghang Namasami Continuing with the um, the theme of uh, shedding light on self-view, uh, Sakaya Ditti. Um, as the, these days have been passing, and uh, what are we, day four, day five? Fifty-five? <laughs> What year is this? <laughs> uh, you know, we uh, we experience the this uh, arising of self-view in so many different ways, and uh, of the many areas and many different ways that this feeling of, of self, of, of I, me and mine, can, can take form. Yeah. Whereas we might be able to, to see it um, and uh, see through it reasonably easily with such things as uh, conceptual thought or a memory, um, a physical sensation, and uh, with a, with some application and effort, we can we, we can see that that uh, there are some areas of experience where it's, uh, it seems a lot denser, a lot thicker. Um, this is how I experience it for myself. So, say for example, it's pretty easy to to recognize the sound of a of a car. Or someone coughing in the room is not self. You know, it's not my sound. You know that uh, that's that's no big deal. <laughs> and then you know, slowly we get to to work on things like physical sensation or, or a, a passing thought, especially if it's a, a thought that passes by that you know you, you, the the thought arises. And you think, where did that come from? And you think, well, maybe it was somebody else thinking that, and it just <laughs> I just had my my antennae antenna tuned so uh, so thought and, and physical sensation are, are maybe less loaded but one of the areas a couple of the areas where it um, tends to be densest is what I thought I might talk about this evening this has come up a few times in the, the discussions the um, interview uh, times that we've had so this is particularly to do with uh, the, the emotions and uh, decision-making. 
that um, this is where the the air, the air starts to get rather thick, <laughs> and that the um, if our, uh, if there's a tendency to form a sense of I and me and mine, then it's uh, most strong and most difficult to get some kind of perspective, most difficult to to sustain any kind of clarity, equanimity, in the in the emotional realm. And uh, so I'll deal with that first of all. I can address that a little bit. So our emotional world is is a uh, um, oftentimes a mystery to us. You know, we we put a lot of effort in our education in the West into concepts and thoughts and ideas and information, and so that's a pretty well. Um, well-traveled, well-explored terrain. Um, but uh, our emotional life is, is pretty much uh, a kind of mis- mysterious or terra incognita. You know, that, uh, the sort of... Where in the old days when they'd have maps of the world, it's where like, the borders would run out and there'd be this sort of, here be dragons. <laughs> this is a sort of here be dragons territory. And the... And uh, it's interesting that this uh, book that Dan Goleman, who uh, probably a few of you know, um, wrote a number of years ago, Emotional Intelligence, um, was like enormous news to tens of thousands of people, that, uh, <laughs> which is frightening. <laughs> but, I mean, it was, it's a very interesting book, and there's a lot of very... Um, uh, important and fascinating information in it, but the fact that it was such a new concept um, and uh, talking about areas understanding you know, the mind in, in, and how the emotional patterns work and and then the suggestion of towards emotional maturity emotional stability intelligence as, a, as a sort of admirable quality and actually more valuable in real human terms than, than uh, calculating power or or the ability to um, recognize patterns or, or retain information. <laughs> surprise, surprise. <laughs> but um, so for most of us, the, you know, our emotional life is, is very intense, as an intense presence in our, in our day-to-day experience, but um, is a, a realm that we, we don't really understand. And as a kind of illustration that comes to mind of this, it's rather like where you have um, two um, two people so arguing, um, and that the subject of the argument might be something like um, some, uh, say, in the academic world, it might be arguing some some fine point of the uh, you know, of the nature of of. I say in a theological debate, the, the nature of God. And so here you have maybe a couple of theologians, or very high-minded, highly educated people, debating on these subtle um, and kind of intricate layers of, of ways of talking about ultimate reality. And so on one level, the discussion, uh, the, the kind of the interaction, is this, you know, extraordinarily refined and um, high-minded and uh, you know, elevated Level, but on another level, it's like two eight-year-olds wrestling in the play- in the schoolyard, you know. And uh, my, you know, my God's tougher than your God, you know. You know, 
and uh, and whoever comes out on top's got the best god. You know that it actually, you know, on an emotional level, it's like a you know a playground struggle. Or similarly, I mean, only too obvious in the political arena, where it might be you know two two sides debating some um, uh, extraordinarily esoteric element of financial policy, and um, and even referring to each other as the honourable member for. I don't know what the term is they use in the Congress, but in um, in the Houses of Parliament in in Britain they they use you know the honourable member for Barking South West must be a complete moron, you know. But he's still the honourable member, you know. <laughs> you know they always use these sort of very uh, highfalutin terms of address, well they you know and put a string of of um, caustic insults behind it, um, and uh, it's not even you don't even make eight year old status in. <laughs> In the kind of sparring in the political arena, it's more like yeah, uh, the sort of three-year-olds arguing over gummy worms. <laughs> it's mine. No, it's mine. I got it first. Yeah. So that uh, we, uh, you know, we lose track of the 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 emotional dimension because of the say the the, the context that we. Uh, we're seeing things in, or, or the attention grabbed by, say, the content in terms of ideas or thoughts, or the or the social situation. And we miss the fact that we're behaving like a three-year-old or you know an eight-year-old, or or that um, our, our vision, our understanding is is heavily skewed by by conditioning, by uh, a wave of of fear or anxiety or or desire or uh, excitement, uh, whatever it might be. That gets written out of the picture, and we, our attention gets caught by the, the content, or making a good argument, or, or winning the fight, whatever way we might do it. So it's, um, it's important uh, and to realize that, that Buddhist meditation is a very uh, direct way of learning to come to know our emotional realm and to, to understand it and to, to uh, be able to um, and to live with it so to coexist with it peacefully to to see how it fits into the whole picture and to be able to to live with the patterns and characteristics the style of our own our own emotional um, responses reactions and how to guide our emotional life. The um, the tendency is whenever we have some kind of emotional reaction, say there's some big issue in our life, and, um, and it stirs up whenever it comes to mind or something makes us think of that or it brings it to our attention, then we experience a, a strong emotional surge of um, grief or of longing or of jealousy or of indignation um, of anger or, or whatever it might be some there's usually some kind of uh, the surges of of love and compassion are not usually considered problematic you know <laughs> so it 's not as though that those are totally out of the picture, but <laughs> they aren 't the ones that cause so much trouble uh, so you know, it's not that I'm just sort of espousing a negative view on life, but I'll just stick with the, 
the, the kind of negative, afflictive ones, because they're the, uh, the generally the troublemakers. What we have, what we struggle over. So that uh, we experience that that um, a wave of feeling, and then the mind immediately starts um, producing. The, the stories we we relive a, a situation or we imagine a situation in the future. We start creating scenarios. We start script writing, and uh, and even for things that have already happened, we we rewrite the script. If you noticed that um, how it might have been, how it should have been, could have been, ought to have been, um, and uh, I, I fully admit for myself, I spent much of my first you know, I don't know five, six, seven years of Monastic life. I, I, by the way, I was never a lay Buddhist, by the way, so I have to kind of track my um, meditation life from when I entered the monastery. So I was, um, I've been in the monastery about six or seven years, and I was still gleefully rewriting history on a daily basis. And you know, have you noticed how you can, you can remember back to something like 10, 15 years ago, rewrite the script, um, and get really excited really irritated by the things that didn't happen. <laughs> it's amazing. And then there's a little voice saying, it didn't happen. <laughs> it didn't go that way, you know. And then, meanwhile, the script writer is saying, yeah, but what about this? And what about that? And then, and then, and then, and then, and then. And, then, and, and it's totally absurd, farcical. But, you know, we can't just switch it off by an act of will. It just doesn't seem to work that way. So we uh, we experience uh, um, this, you know like a wave of emotion, and immediately the mind gets drawn into to the the memories, the ideas, the the the, uh, the stories around it, the justifications, the uh, criticisms, the um, the complaints, and the the anxieties, and. Um, as we get the attention gets drawn in by the story of you know this person did this and I did that and la di da di da, then um, we've lost sight that there is an emotional reaction happening because we're fully woven into the plot. We have become the plot. We are we are the story. Um, and then when it finally sort of runs its course, or, or we notice that happening, then all we can think of doing is is just um, uh, trying to su- suppress it or, or, or uh, try to get, get rid of it or recognizing, well, this is a problem. I've got to do something about this. Um, I keep getting carried away with this. And, and so that, this was at least what I experienced, was that um, I, would, I would be swept up by some sort of reactive process and then get carried along by it, like being carried along by a, a swollen river and finally get washed up on a, on the you know, on the bank somewhere <laughs> you know downstream where the the current had sort of slowed a little bit and spluttering and and kind of clambering out through the mud and the reeds and think, okay whew, right i'm not going to let that happen again right <laughs> next time yeah you know, i'm not going to let that happen i'm determined you know and so um we just keep uh, anyway, and that, that seems fair enough. You know, there we are, absolutely overwhelmed by these feelings of, of, of fear or lust or something, and you realize, well, this is you know a wasteful process, and you know, things, nothing good is coming of this, and, and it's really sort of confusing and, and disturbing. So, better to not have it around, right? 
and then you read all these Buddhist books about you know these the, the problem of of fear or anger or jealousy and these are all the stuff that is it's not good to have around, right? You know the book says so. Therefore, get rid of them, or at least see that. Well, I've got this problem with anger, with fear, with jealousy, with lust, with doubt, or whatever it might be. So that tends to be where we start from. Is that uh, uh, is that we start off with? I've got this problem with X, and and so I need to get rid of it. So how you know, how can I get rid of my my anger problem? Ajahn Amaro, <laughs> Ajahn Sumedho, please help me. I've got this big anger problem. How can I get rid of anger? And it seems very reasonable, doesn't it? Absolutely better than saying, you know, I have no problem with anger. I'm quite happy with it. <laughs> I, will, I, will, I will follow it whenever I feel like, you know. Um, so that, uh, you know, it's, it seems a reasonable place. But, but as I've been saying... Um, you know, if we start with with that assumption, you know, if we start with I am a person who has this problem with fear, and I've got to get rid of this fear. If I could get rid of this fear problem, then I would be fine, or at least finer than I am. But this is the big issue. If I could just get rid of this, then um, w- life would be a lot better. And so it seems reasonable. But what we don't notice is that when we do that, we're 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 creating a, a, a paradigm of, uh, based on ignorance. We're creating a paradigm of, here is me, this permanent solid entity who possesses this thing called a problem, which is a, a fear problem, say, for example. And that, so there is the me that possesses this thing, and if the me could not have this thing, then the, the me would be better, happy, healed, uh, complete, or whatever. So we don't notice that we've just created a, a, a false image. We've created the self-view. We've, we've bought into the self-view of, uh, and created a solid permanent person who's got this solid and real uh, thing that's called a problem. So the, one of the ways to approach it is to, so first of all, to step back from that. And, uh, you know, and I fully admit it took me years of... of hearing Ajahn Sumedho saying this <laughs> over and over and over and over and over again, endless times till finally it clicked after you know, four or five years, that, um, that when we start from a place of ignorance, then the result is always going to be dukkha. That the, the me is the problem. It's the, the, the me is not that which possesses the problem. The me is the problem. Um, and so that we, rather than, than starting from that place, we need to, to come back to a more primal place, a place of, of vijja. If we start from knowing, if we start from that, that uh, awakened view, awakened uh, understanding, then we, there's a chance of, of the, the result being nirvana, peacefulness, clarity. So what that means is, that uh, an awakenedness happens in the present. So if we, if we create the self-view, like I am this person who exists over time, and then there is this problem. I have this, this fear, this is my fear problem. And whether I'm paying attention to it or not, then it's always here. It exists, and I pay attention to it, and there it is. 
And I look away and it's still there, because it's my fear problem. It's always, it has this, this continued permanent existence, whether I'm paying attention to it or not. So, um, what we don't realize is that um, both the person and the problem are being continually recreated. And the more that we believe in them, the more consistently and more effectively and more sort of perfectly <laughs> uh, they are recreated over and over and over. And the fact is that we don't have to keep recreating them. Now, I don't want to sort of get into a whole philosophical tangle about whether things exist when you're not looking at them. You're like um, Bishop Berkeley, or Berkeley, as he's called in this country. That, um, which is a, uh, had this, his proof, this was, he was in the 18th century Irish philosopher, and uh, his proof of the existence of God was that things persisted existing when you weren't paying attention to them. And he used this, uh, the um, oak tree that was in the, the quadrangle of the, the, university, the college where he lived as the example of, like, did the oak tree still exist when no one was looking at it? And, uh, and uh, there was a, a poem written about this, which I'll, just as a little aside, in case you need a little enter, just in case you're getting hungry for entertainment. <laughs> there was a young man who said, God must think it exceedingly odd to find that this tree continues to be when there's no one about in the quad. <laughs> Dear sir, your astonishment's odd. I am always about in the quad. And that's why this tree will continue to be signed, yours faithfully, God. <laughs> so I won't get, I don't want to get into that uh, sort of philosophical <laughs> wrangle. And... Uh, and it's true, and if the problem happens to be, say, a debt of $100,000, the fact that you're not paying attention to it doesn't mean to say the debt gets paid off. But, um, or that the tendency to have a, a fear reaction, a fearful reaction, it's not like that tendency does not still have a, a, a potentiality to, to, to um, be reborn. Um, that potentiality it can still be there, the underlying tendency can still be there. But the fact is that we don't notice that it is constantly being created out of habit, and that if we stop creating it, and if we, we slowly allow the habit to wear out, that it doesn't have any self-existent quality of its own, just as the person, nor the, 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 the thing that we call the problem, or the, the problematic nature of it, that we call it a problem. We don't realize that we're doing that. We think it's reasonable to judge the presence of that in that way. So what we do is, is that, is, uh, say, rather than starting from that place of, of the self-view, me with my problem, we take a step back and say, well, in this moment, what is there? And that if we're uh, attentive and we work with it in this way, we see that a feeling of fear, say, this is my own, you know, uh, the, the problem, the issue that I found myself working with mostly in the, the in early years of meditation and that, that I got stuck on was seeing that that feeling of fear arose. It wasn't there all the time. It was actually 
something that arose and it persisted for a while and then it faded away. It was an extraordinarily common reaction. I would see myself anxious or fearful, you know, many hours of the day. Of the day. But when I looked, I, I, I could see, yeah, it is actually something that comes into existence. It arises. It's not a permanent entity. And I call it my fear problem as if it had a permanent presence. But it's not there all the time. It arises, it passes away. And that, and in this, this, the, uh, the environment of meditation, in the, the space of meditation, when we look at it, we see, oh yeah, it's like this. That the feeling of fear, when it arises, it's like this. And that fear could be attached to all kinds of different things. It could be fear of um, failure, it could be fear of rejection, it could be fear of um, the dark, it could be you know, fear of not getting you know, enough dessert, <laughs> it could be fear of, of not being liked or not being approved of, all kinds of things that, you know, that it would latch onto. But the, the process would be to, to deliberately, at that moment when you see the, the feeling of fear arising, you know, it's arisen because it's been triggered by a particular object or a particular thought. So what one does is to like consciously withdraw the attention from that object. It's like a deliberate, uh, and even if you don't mean it, to say to yourself, I'm not interested in the story. I'm not interested in the object. Um, and withdrawing that attention and, and turning the attention back on the subject um, and saying, well, this is the feeling of fear. Regardless of what it's latched onto or been triggered by, this is what fear feels like. So that with emotions, the, the, as I, I was saying, the, the main problem with them is that they, they, we get confused and that they're, they're not logical. We get, tangled, we get tangled in the stories so easily. Um, and so that when we try to work out our emotional life through the verbal and conceptual realm, we get very easily totally lost. So um, by bringing the attention back and just recognizing the simple feeling and particularly the physical sensation, like it doesn't matter where it came from or what it's caused or, or whose fault it is, don't care. And even if you do care, just tell yourself, I don't care. It's skillful half-truths in this respect are really useful. Just say, I don't care, kind of act nonchalant, I don't care. <laughs> I'm not interested, later. Give me, the, give me all the stories later. Right now, this is the feeling of fear. It feels like this. It sits in the body like this. And so you're, you're drawing the attention back um, to the physical sensation. Like in the, 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 the description of the Four Noble Truths of, of Lumpur Dun that I was describing. The mind that goes out and pursues its moods um, uh, is the cause of suffering. So it's like, rather than pursuing the mood, then the mind, clearly knowing the mind, is the way to the cessation of suffering. You turn the attention back onto, onto the mind, what's happening. So, oh, this is fear, this is a fear reaction. And it feels like this. And, and it takes some effort to, to pull, out, uh, pull away from the stories and the, and, the, and the verbalization, conceptualization. But we can do it. We can do it. And then just coming to the body and, and just noticing how fear... I'm just using fear as the example. Just noticing where that sits in the body and so that I would find it would be like this tension in the gut, this tightness in the gut. See? And then when you really pull back from the, 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 the conceptual 
mental quality and you just come to the, the physical sensation, you realize, oh, well, this is actually just a sensation. It's not pleasant. But at this moment, it is actually just a feeling. And the, the kind of self-creating mind says, yeah, but this is a really important... You know, and say, thank you for sharing. <laughs> there are many members of, of the committee... There are many members of the internal committee and they all have a right to speak but there are certain ones that you do not want to give the chair to. So at this time you're not giving the chair or even the talking stick to, <laughs> to that side of the, that, those elements of the committee. You're just coming to this very simple feeling because the body, the language of the body is a, is a monosyllabic language. It's, it's, it's a very simple, direct. So by coming to the feeling, just saying, oh, it's like this. It's an uncomfortable feeling. And then I'd reflect on this. Say, well, yeah, fear. Fear is supposed to be uncomfortable. Our ancestors who, who did not experience fear are not the ones who survived. The ones who say, oh, this is okay. <laughs> I can live with this. They got eaten. So fear is supposed to be unpleasant. It's designed to be unpleasant. If it wasn't, we'd get eaten. You know, as again, we're back with a sort of eat with it, mate with it. <laughs> yeah, take hold of it kind of impulses. But our nature is, is run in this way. So fear is what protects us as a, as a physical being, is to get us out of danger. We get to a place where the fear stops, to a safe place. So that it's an uncomfortable feeling that what the instinct is to get away from. But in the moment, it is just like this. And then I would, I would also it's important to be not trying to get rid of it. If you're doing this, if you're sort of pursuing this process in order to get rid of the fear, then you just amplify it and multiply it, protract it. It's, you have to have a, a sort of a background attitude of, well, if this keeps coming back for the rest of eternity, I don't care. What I'm interested in is this is here right now and it feels like this. What happens in the future, I don't care. And again, if it's a total lie, don't worry. <laughs> Just say, I don't care. Say, but right now it feels like this. Here it is. It's like this. And then you notice that it can only sustain itself for a certain amount of time and then it fades away. The mind gets distracted by something else or the, or the wave just runs out on its own. Like any, any other experience any other aspect of nature. It, it can only sustain itself for a, a certain period of time. So then it fades and then you, you find the body you know, relaxing. That, that tension leaves the, the gut and you, there's a, a feeling of, of, of ease again. So in that moment we've seen that feeling of, of fear arising coming into being and fading away. We've seen it beginning, we've seen it ending. And in that moment of, of experiencing it, we can hold it with a, a heart of loving kindness. That moment when we, there's, a, there's an acceptance of it, it's like when we can really acknowledge it, receive it, like, oh, it's like this. Huh. This is, I don't like it, but it's, this is the way it is. It's okay, it's bearable. It's not a problem. It's just this, in this moment. And then we, at that moment we can also see calling this my fear problem is, 
is an unnecessary ascription. It's just in this moment, it is what it is. It's just a feeling. All the, the naming and claiming and owning is, is extra. So at that moment, we've, by accepting and, and uh, allowing the physical feeling, then we've also, to some degree, accepted the place where it came from. Whereas um, on the, the sort of cognitive, the intellectual level, we can't get anywhere near the, the, the thing that's triggered the fear in the first place um, because of the complications and the, and the, the story-making. By the simple act of, of accepting the, the, the symptom, it's like because of drinking from the stream, you've drunk from the source. You know, you, you, by accepting the feeling, the physical sensation of it wholeheartedly, it's almost like that's the sort of tunnel. There's a connection back to the, that internal imbalance, the sort of the, the core tendency that's, that's conditioned that fear reaction in the first place. So that very active acceptance is what starts to um, wear away that karmic habit of reacting in that, in that fashion. So this is one way of, of, of working with that kind of emotion. So this is to do with, with like whenever it arises on its own, uh, whenever it, it sort of comes into being on its own. Also, and an, another kind of practice that I, I'm very fond of and I found extremely effective is rather than just waiting for it to arrive adventitiously, just as it's something triggers it randomly, to actually conjure it up to invite it. If you know there's this big issue in your life that you have this kind of obsession or this fear or this angry reaction or this anxiety or this problem, you know, my problem with, with uh, this issue or that person or it might be in, my, internal, it might be a, something to do with your health, it might be a family member or an, a, a spouse or an ex. Exes are very good for this. <laughs> Very effective emotional generators. (laughs) Um, But by uh, a deliberate invitation, actually it's much easier to create space uh, for that and to understand and to learn that reaction, what that that reactive process is. So the way one does this is like in a sitting meditation in particular, just to bring the mind to a state of, of calmness and focus as much as possible. Then if you know that you have this issue with, with death or with fear or with, with your ex or with your, your, you know, your unrequited romance or your kind of feelings of whatever it might be, rejection or the, the problem, then deliberately invite it in. And you usually, you don't need a whole story. You don't need like a big text. Usually just um, just bringing to mind something like my problem. <laughs> just thinking a word like that or him. <laughs> that's, that's enough. You know, it's all there. You know, it's the, the entire... You, know, you, just, you just hit the keyword and, and the whole... You get the whole file, you know. Plus attachments, you know. <laughs> The entire zip file is enclosed, <laughs> so that uh, 
this way you're you're deliberately inviting in this right and the analogy I like to use is the difference between someone just showing up at your door and inviting themselves for lunch uh, which is you know one can adapt to and work with but the difference between that and actually sending out invitations so you actually invited this feeling in so that you know what I would do I think of a situation where I was so again using the example of fear where I was um, pressured or, or frightened or where I, I uh, something caused that, that deep anxiety. And so I deliberately dropped that in. And then, then watch the reaction. Like, it's just like you pull the trigger. And then watch the, the, you know, the flow of experience. And again, as soon as you've triggered it, then you have to make a very... And before, well, before you trigger it, you need to make a firm resolution of like, don't go into the story. It's not that the stories are invaluable, you know, are not valuable or important in their own way, but it's just for this particular exercise, you know, we want to leave them alone. That's um, like listening to the story of the body more. So that leaving the verbiage alone, then a, again coming into the to the body to see how does that feel, whether it's you know, indig- righteous indignation, uh, anger, longing, grief. Um, whatever you know, it works for the entire spectrum of emotional feelings, and no matter how justified they are or reasonable, we're just pulling away from all of that and say, "Oh, here is this feeling." It's like this, and in exactly the same way, you let it run its course, and then, kind of giving it full strength, just let it do its thing, and then after you know a number of minutes, five, ten minutes, maybe, just as it sort of, you've got a, you you you've had a sense of uh, of being able to. To, to feel it, to hold it, to, to fully accept it. When you've held it and, uh, and found that quality of, of unconditional acceptance for it, then say, okay, well now let's draw this to a close and then set the intention to just let it wind down. And sometimes it might be like half an hour or, or an hour <laughs> before it, if it's, a really, if it's a real juicy one, before it runs out. You know, I'd find usually after setting that kind of intention, maybe sort of 10, 15, 20 minutes, it would run down. And again, once it's run down, just, just let yourself come to that you know, space of quietude and openness and really tasting fully, oh, this is the mind, this is the body, free of that emotional state. So you've fully experienced that before. That before has like, here is, the, here is the mind, here is the body, free from that feeling of fear. It's like this. And you, you drop it in, you, you experience it fully, you, in a way, allow yourself to um, to find. You stay with it till you find that space of awareness that you were in before. But yet, that that the physical sensation of of that emotion is present within that awareness, and so it's, it's like held with that same spaciousness, and letting it go, and then finding that awareness, that spaciousness, free from that that uh, experience. So you've, like in the same space, you've watched the whole thing balloon into existence and then deflate and then fade away. So you've seen the space before, the space permeating it, and the space after it. And something in our heart knows it's the same space. Nothing is obstructed, nothing is corrupted, nothing is deluded by the, the presence of that. It is just an a, another attribute of nature, like a feeling of the breath, like the song of a bird, like a, a sensation in your leg. 
it's just this. It takes shape, it does its thing, it fades away. So, uh, in that way, what we're doing is we're depersonalizing the whole emotional reactive process because it's so difficult because the sense of I and me and mine gets woven so deeply in that. You know, I am really in these stories. And the self and the other and the, you know, all these characters get inked in very deeply. But what we're doing by this kind of practice is just seeing the, the absolutely intrinsic, impersonal nature of the whole thing. And that the, the name, our name sort of gets written on it, but it's not intrinsically there. It's, this is just fear. It's not my fear. It's not anybody else's fear. It's just a, a, a process in nature, coming into being, doing its thing, fading away. And the heart realizes at that moment, that's all. That's all it is. And then what we find is that when when we we run this a few times, and, our, in, in, and if you if you've got enough time, and, and and that it's also really helpful after you've done this once, then let the mind really settle and be calm. Drop it in again. Watch the whole thing repeat itself. It's like watching the you know, the, the reruns. <laughs> Just drop it in again. Again, watch the whole process kick in, take its shape, and sort of ranting in the same way with the same conviction, and and then again dropping it. And run it again and again and again and again, so that you you become so familiar with the process that when you're in in the um, the natural flow of things, and then that same reaction gets triggered, you've trained yourself so that as that takes shape, you've already trained yourself to to not get drawn into the the details of the of the interaction of what you know what she just said to you, or what you got to do about this, or what do they think of me and and it's like, oh, it's that fear reaction. It feels like this. And then you start to be able to just go to that and then relax with it and, and accept it. That we're not flustered or confused or dragged along by the, 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 the power of the, the interaction. So we find ourselves much more, easy, much more easily able to come from a place of, of, uh, of openness, of selflessness, of, of ease in dealing with um, difficult, stressful uh, situations. And whether it's to do with fear, or with, with grief, or with anger, or with jealousy, or desire, or whatever it might be, there's a, it works in, in all those situations, with all those different emotional states. So if we can really work with emotion in this way, then it, this cuts through the, the, the self-creating program very, very effectively. That the, we begin to really see the self-view and the, the, the creation of, of, of me and you and other as these concrete, eternal, independent beings. It, it, uh, it, it cuts through that, it, it challenges that, it, it illuminates that more and more deeply. There's like more and more areas of our of our world where that same insight is uh, is seen to to be valid to to operate. So the other little piece I thought I might mention about decision making is like so people say, well, what about out in the real world? Ha! <laughs> the the weirdly named real world. <laughs> of uh, freeways and 
employment opportunities and uh, family life and uh, televisions and uh, credit ratings or lack thereof that uh, out in the real world you know i've got to make decisions i got i got things to do i got i got you know responsibilities you know how do i live my life i can't just sort of hang around and being kind of one with the yeah, <laughs> intuitive wisdom you know i've got i got a a, a business to run but uh, it's it's useful to to recognize that even though um, it might really seem beyond everything else that okay maybe a thought's not self or a feeling's not self or even an emotion's not self but certainly when it comes to a decision like someone's got to make it you know there's definitely someone deciding A or B or this or that right or wrong but if again if you begin to look what happens when a, a, a choice needs to be made you know, if we, if again, if we really look, and you see, in exactly the same way, um, that the mind is confronted with a, with a decision, and say, you know, on a on a situation, a retreat like this, you know, you, you don't really have a lot of deciding to like one zafu or two. <laughs> Which blanket shall I wear, or um, should I change my walking path, or? One, one scoop of salad or two? Do I really need an extra cookie? So that, um, you know, these are fairly low-key, easy, uh, kind of unloaded. Maybe you think they are loaded, yeah. <laughs> what does he mean, cookie? We didn't get cookies. <laughs> I'm going to talk to the kitchen. You know. I noticed how silent you all were suddenly there. Yeah. Should I talk to the kitchen about how should I write that note about <laughs> about why aren't I getting any cookies? I want that problem of deciding whether I have two cookies or one. Yeah. Whatever it might be, that uh, what happens is that you know the well, there's a perception of a situation, um, and then the the a question arises. You know, one cookie or two or none, three. <laughs> so there's a there's a question arises, and then uh, what what follows that then is that the mind draws upon memory, upon perception, you know the the range of possibilities, previous resolutions that have been made, um, uh, intuitions of of what is. Uh, Helpful, what's needed, what's appropriate, how many people there are in the queue behind you, etc., etc. So the mind draws upon upon memory, upon perception, upon uh, upon wisdom. I kind of and that particular quality of intuitive wisdom, that attribute of our own heart, which is intrinsically attuned to the whole situation, that that we can draw upon, that uh, can inform us. So then. All of these attributes, like perception is not self, you know, thinking is not self, memory is not self, intuitive wisdom is not self. These, these are not an I, there's not a person. These are just natural, impersonal, universal qualities. So then the different perceptions and, judgment, and kind of evaluations and judgments arise, and then out of that, 
then a pathway presents itself. And so, well, that looks like the best way to go. Or, and which might be, yeah, take the cookie or, or leave it. Or, or we'll look around the room and see how many other people there are. Or, or uh, it might be, well, consider for a moment, you know, do you really need this? And so the, a pathway presents itself. And then out of that, uh, you know, a ch- what we would call a choice gets acted on. And then the, you know, the hand reaches for the cookie or, or you walk on. So from the outside, you can say, I made a decision to take the cookie. But actually inside, that whole process, there's no, there's no need for any sense of self to arise at all. And then similarly, afterwards, then, then the feeling can say, I didn't take a cookie, I'm really restrained, I'm really doing well here, the practice is really taking root, you know. Wow, that's amazing, yeah, I could never have imagined not taking the extra cookie last year, and it's like, I, 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 I. Yeah. Or the reverse. Oh my God, I can't believe I did it. I'm such a slob. I'm such an oaf. I'm going to weigh 250 pounds by the end of this retreat if I keep <laughs> eating all these cookies and what do they think of me? And they're watching me. They, they all saw me take that second cookie. <laughs> she thinks I'm a complete greedy oaf and what can I do to repair the... etc. I, 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 you know. So the habit is to create the self around it. But if we look and we examine any one little process, we see that what's operating there is is um, perception, memory, intelligence, uh, the the kind of pool of, of information and uh, the, the sense for proprieties, a degree of instinctual impulses, uh, a degree of of intuitive wisdom. And then whatever happens out of that uh, is sort of in the 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 the, uh, the the track that's followed. But there's no intrinsic self involved in it. So that when we're we're confronted with choices in our, our working life, when the you know the retreat ends and, and you're confronted with more complicated things than, than to cookie or not to cookie, then it's exactly the same way. We can take a, a the best way of, of working with this is to, when confronted with a decision or a situation, then to just take a step back and say, well, what's happening here? What, what's, what is the situation? What's the, just to ask ourselves, what's the right thing to do here? And then just to listen to, you, like, listen to your own heart. So a lot of what uh, I've been trying to convey during these, these days is a way uh, uh, that we can draw upon our own natural wisdom, the attunement of our heart. Because the nature of our own mind, our own heart, is of the nature of, uh, it's it's made of the same substance as everything else. It's all Dhamma, It's it's all part of the natural order, whether it's mental or physical. So you can, you can, Think of your heart as like your your kind of access point to the whole uh, natural order of things, and so by listening to your heart, by accessing your own heart, it's like drawing upon that intuitive wisdom. It's like your heart knows in any from any one moment what is the right thing to do or to not do, to act or not act, to to be uh, to move forward, to go back, to 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 leave things alone, or what. 
And it's like drawing upon that, consulting your own oracle, if you like, to get a little bit new agey. But it really it does work that way. It's like listening to what your heart intuits about the situation. It's like, you don't need another cookie. So, okay, right. <laughs> or, like, or it might be, yes, take it, idiot. <laughs> Enjoy it. <laughs> don't make a problem, it's just a cookie. So, uh, learning to draw upon that, that, that wisdom, that, uh, that intuitive attunement to each situation, and to learn to trust that, rather than um, habits of thinking, compulsions, uh, pressure from external influences, uh, what, you, what we think that everyone is, is thinking about us, or what, every, what the world expects of us, to, to let... You know, to to take those kind of other influences into account, but primarily to trust that the heart is kind of picking up all of that, and it knows all of that. It's attuned to that, and that we can we can trust that. So that this is you know a most wonderful and powerful resource is the Buddha wisdom. You know, this when we talk about the Buddha as being omniscient, or the you know the Buddha mind being kind of. Um, you know, pure, ocean-like, uh, with ocean-like compassion. It's really referring to you know this this very heart of ours that is has that those capacities for for perfect wisdom, for perfect compassion, for this perfect attunement, and that the more that we we allow ourselves to shed the obscurations. The, the habits of uh, compulsion, of self-creation, of um, believing in opinions, um, just being moved by habit and by expectation, by the uh, familiar conventions, then we're able to, to listen to that heart more and more clearly and to trust what, how it guides us more and more clearly. We are able to you respond to life from that basis more and more clearly. So I, I, I realize when I talk in this way that it can sound a little bit hokey <laughs> or strange. But yeah, I think just during this time we can really investigate that and see, well, does this, is this valid? Does this have some, some sort of meaning? How does that work? And that when we actually begin to do that and we learn to, to come from this place of, of knowing, of trusting, like not a plan, not a set of judgments, not a, a kind of long-standing view, but in this moment, just like I was describing about dealing with emotion, like coming, stepping back from that, I've got this fear problem, or well, I'm a, I'm a mother, or I'm a, you know, I'm a doctor, or I'm a, a businessman, I'm, I'm a this, I'm a that, or I've got to deal with this, I've got this issue with my mortgage, I've got to do this with my son. It's like, well, what in this moment, what is here? Laying aside all of those those are heavyweight constructs. What is here? What is this? What to do? And learning to listen. It's uh, the, the phrase uh, Tan uh, Punadhamma was talking about last night, the Savaka Sangha. The, the Sangha of listeners. I mean, there's many ways you can interpret this that, that term. But I like to think of the Savaka Ones who listen, not just ones who listen to the, the 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 Buddha's teaching, 
But it's this whole quality of listening. Also, why I like to use the nada sound, the sound of silence, as a as a practice, because it it supports this whole quality of listening, of attending. Like there was a French word to uh, to listen, uh, attendre. To is to we like the, is the same as the English word to attend. So that the uh, there's this quality of receiving the present moment. In the Benedictine rule, there are the three um, cardinal principles of, of uh, poverty, chastity, and obedience. And um, the, the technically, obedience means doing what the abbot says. <laughs> That's how it's usually interpreted. It's obedience to the the, the head of the of the monastery, the abbess or the the abbot. But uh, also, uh, I've heard it explained that the Latin word uh, the the uh, the word obedience comes from the Latin ob audiens, which means to be completely listening, to listen completely, and so that. Uh, the the more esoteric interpretation of that is that yes you should do what the abbot tells you but more than that you should be listening to the the listening to the the, the presence of God that it's like it's actually obedience to God obedience to the the um, the reality of the present that is the the primary commitment and sometimes and as my friend brother David Steinelrass was saying yeah sometimes this accords with the wishes of the abbot but sometimes it does not. <laughs> So that it's, but it's more important to, uh, just as with Buddhist practice, you know that if uh, if you find something in the teachings that 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 you know, says it one way, but your experience is another, your feeling for what is the right thing to do is another, then it's more important to 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 give credence to your intuition, to your experience. That our own experience is the, is the final arbiter of of truth. You know, of course, we we can be mistaken, but the more that we investigate, the more we practice, the more we learn how to recognize, you know, the voice of wisdom, the tone of that. When the when we say draw upon that quality of of uh, intuitive wisdom, it's almost like a a tone that that has, and that uh, we learn to distinguish between that and the the desire mind or the chattering mind, the uh, the habitual self-centered mind that is rather like distinguishing the, between the voices of the Buddha and Mara the, the, the voice of Mara is always kind of slightly slippery it's got this sort of used car salesman George Sanders type oh good morning how are you today <laughs> well I, I really wouldn't bother doing that if I was you you know <laughs> But uh, Mara has this sort of uh, slightly um, oily <laughs> aura, and that uh, with the voice of the the Buddha, the Buddha mind has this kind of measured, easeful quality. Whereas, uh, and you know, I mean, I could sort of go on about this forever, but just learning to recognize those within, within ourselves, it's like that's a clear, simple measured understanding that says yeah go ahead don't worry about it whatever they think doesn't matter 
do what you need to do, or leave it alone, dummy. <laughs> Get out now. <laughs> but, you know, but even when such sort of insights arise in that way, even if it might be something emphatic like that, it, it comes up in a way that, you know, oh, trust this. <laughs> and that it's only by getting familiar with that, by learning to listen to the mind, learning to really attend we become able to discern you know, which are the, the voices to follow and which are the voices to, to not follow. So the, the last thing I'll, I'll say this evening, as I was mentioning earlier, again, I made a passing reference to the committee. And I find this a very helpful way of regarding our inner world. Um, because when we use the word I, again, hammering the, uh, the, the uh, issue of the self-view, when we use the word I, we habitually think we're referring to one thing, right? Um, but it's much more helpful to think of ourselves as a committee, if not a metropolis, <laughs> but at least a committee. And that the various members of the committee have different feelings about certain issues. And that there's sometimes you know, one member of the committee will be saying, but I want it, I want it, I want it. You say, oh... Thank you for sharing, yes, we, we understand that you, you, you want this. And another member of the committee might say, well, I think, if you want my opinion, you know, and I say, well, thank you for sharing. And, and then another member of the committee says, well, I'm not going to leave this room until everyone has agreed with me. Say, oh, thank you for sharing. <laughs> there are many, many voices uh, in the committee and it's important that we, just like if any of us who've sat in groups and try to have an egalitarian process, you know, uh, the, the uh, consensus, uh, if you've ever worked in Quaker, Quaker groups or in sort of Buddhist uh, committees, <laughs> where you're aiming for consensus, the rule is everyone gets heard and, and no one gets rejected or shouted down. You keep going until you've, you arrive at some kind of place of agreement. So in exactly the same way, all the voices of the internal committee, the kind of frustrated three-year-old and the, you know, the wise old grandma and the, the um, well-informed intellectual and the you know, authoritarian slob and the whole crew, it's important that we, we listen, we attend to all of them. That there's a, a real receiving of all the different voices. But just like, you know... It, it, if a three-year-old is, is pounding the table and screaming, you don't <laughs> you don't make them you don't make them the chair of the meeting, or say, okay, well, we'll let you decide. <laughs> it's like, yeah, you know, any one of us who's ever been with a, with a, a shrieking three-year-old, you know, like you can't just suppress that, but you don't you don't hand the wheel over to the to to a, a you know a frantic three-year-old either. So it's like listening to and attending to all these different voices that we, we hear and try to keep the, uh, the Buddha wisdom in the, the uh, position of the chairperson. <laughs> that let, let, let wisdom be the, that which is chairing, the listener, that which is receiving, that which is attending, the, the savaka, that which is hearing, that 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 can receive it all wisely and accommodate it. And then 
what you find is then the, the committee often, if we, if we are relating to it in this way, then we're not frightened of, uh, of say, passionate thoughts or, or kind of waves of, of feeling. Or, or like, you know, we hear some, some teaching of the Dhamma, like, that really shatters our, our you know, <laughs> some part of our, our kind of, our favored reality. It's, it gets deeply threatened. Like, I heard that, and I don't want it to be true. But something in me knows that it is, damn it. And so, that it's a, yeah, okay, well, that's fine. You're not trying to choose between this one or that one. But just say, okay, I recognize that voice that, it, that which is really threatened by that insight. It doesn't have to be gotten rid of or, or destroyed. It's there. Yes, yeah, something is being threatened by that insight. But it also doesn't belie the, the, the intuition that that insight is absolutely correct. That we don't have to, to, to sort of push them aside and just be one thing. That we're, we're complicated beings. We have a whole range of different attributes in our, making up our, our psychological patterns. And that what we find is that by, say, allowing this diversity within us and allowing you know, these reactions that occur from different levels of our being, from the instinctual to the, the emotional, the psychological, the intellectual, you know, the, the, the wise, the spiritual, and, and everything in between, that very quality of, of allowing, of listening and allowing produces a, a response to the situation from the, the most integrated and, and wholesome possible place. That seems to be how it works for me. And so that uh, that understanding or kind of relating to ourselves in that way is, it's not like I'm trying to cultivate a sort of mass multiple personality disorder. <laughs> how many people am I, Ajahn Amaro? <laughs> I think I'm at least six, but I might be t- up to anything up to ten. You know, It's not, I don't want to get, get into that, but just learning to, to relate to the our inner world a little more in that way, I found tremendously helpful. Just as a way of cultivating compassion for all the different attributes of our being and from that place of, of deep listening, of, of complete listening. Of, then we find ourselves obedient to the Dhamma, obedient to the moment we, we what we call our, our actions, our response to each situation. Is, is obeying the Dhamma, but not from a kind of an obligation or an imposition, but just out of, kind of a, a natural uh, responsiveness. It's a, uh, a natural outflow from that. So I offer these thoughts for consideration. Anyone? There was a, a request for a, a, another journey through the Itipiso. <laughs> so we might uh, do that again this evening. And uh, apparently some people had difficulty tracking it down. So I'll walk you through. It's the, um, 
If you go to the evening chanting in Pali on page 8, the uh, the chant that we were doing is is a combination. If you go down three quarters of the way, so where it says recollection of the Buddha, um, then you'll see this, the third line down begins itipiso bhagava. Okay, that's the first piece. Then on the Dhamma, next page, page 9, uh, recollection of the Dhamma, halfway down, um, svakato bhagavata dhammo, so it begins at the second line, and then pachatang vedita bovinyuhi, and then over the page to the recollection of the Sangha, and then supatipanno, again the second line, bhagavato sāvaka-sankho. So you have to be a little bit nimble with the, with the pages, but um, that's where those things are. Is that clear enough for everyone? Okay. Itipi so bagoa arahang sama sambuno ija charanasa pano sugatolo kawidu anutaro purisadamasarati sada deva manusana bundo magawati sawakado pagawata damo sandi tiko akaliko ehipasiko Opanaiko bhajata vedita bovinyu iti supatipano bhagavato savaka sango Uchupatipano bhagavato savaka sango nyayapatipano bhagavato savaka sango Samichipatipano bhagavato savaka sango yadidangcha taripurisayuganiyata purisambhu kala esam bhagavato savaka sango Ahunayo, Bahunayo, Dakinayo, Anjali, Karaniyo, Anutarang, Punyaketa, Lokasati. Encore? Itipiso magoa arahang samasambhuno ija charanasambano sugato lokavidu anutaro purisada masarati sata deva manusanang Bodo Bhagavati Savakato Bhagavata Namo Sanditiko Akaliko 
ehi pasiko opanaiko bachatang vedita bovinyu iti supati pano vagavato savakasango ujupati pano vagavato savakasango nyayapati Kavato savaka sango samichi patipano Magavato savaka sango yadidancha Tari purisayugani yata purisabugala Esambhakavato savaka sango ahunayopa unayopa Dakinayo Anjali Karaniyo Anuttarang Punyaketang Loka Sati Itipiso Bhagavaharahang Samasambudo Vijacharanasa Pano Sugato Loka Vidu Anuttaro Purisadham Sarati Sata Deva Manusanang Buddho Magavati Savakato Magavatadamo Sanditiko Akaliko Ehipasiko Opanaiko Bachatang Vedita Bovinyu Iti supati pano bhagavato savaka sango ujupati pano bhagavato savaka sango nyayapati pano bhagavato savaka sango sami chipati pano bhagavato savaka sango yadida Chatari Purisayugani Yata Purisampu Kala Esampakavato Savaka Sango Ahunayo Pahunayo Dakinayo Anjali Karaniyo Anuttarang Punyaketang Lokatsati
The teaching so completely explained by him, I bow to the Dhamma. The Blessed One's disciples who have practiced well, I bow to the Sangha.